So welcome to the STEM Team Podcast, and where we talk about STEM education, diversity, equity, inclusion, and mentoring. And today we have an esteemed guest that I will let her introduce herself because it's important for you to hear all about her story. But I just wanted to invite you to check out the other episodes and thank you for continuing to listen to this podcast. You, the audience, are making it what it is. And I hope that you spread the word about this podcast because it's important to talk about science in a way that is, has a sense of belonging for everyone and that everyone can enjoy what science means to the world as we as scientists do think about this. Dr. Suarez, could you introduce yourself? All right. Thank you. My name is Dr. Michelle Juarez. I am a assistant director for the DNA Learning Center, NYC, part of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. That's really awesome. Could you tell us a little bit more about your occupation? And then how did you decide to go down this avenue? Because it sounds quite interesting. Yes. So my journey to the DNA Learning Center has been a long one. But interestingly, it's a circular journey. I began my graduate work at Stony Brook University and did my thesis project at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. So I have known about the research and the education that Cold Spring Laboratory has been doing since I joined the lab many, many years ago. So it's really exciting now to be serving in a capacity as an educational assistant director, working with middle school students, working with high school students, and working with college students to promote biology education in our communities that I know I didn't have as a high school student or as a middle school student. So I think it's really exciting to contribute to this space and provide that opportunity now. That's awesome. So do you contribute to this space in only this way? Are there other avenues that you've kind of pursued and that you're doing really well at? Yeah. So as a scientist, I think we've all learned about ways to communicate our discoveries to other scientists. But one thing that I didn't learn about until later in my, my career was how to communicate my new discoveries to my community. My mother used to think that I pulled wings off of fruit flies as a research question, and I had to correct her constantly, <laughs> telling her no, that my independent research was looking at genetic pathways to control injury and repair and inflammation, all things that are really important for human health, but in a fruit fly. Um, and so as a scientist in, in my career, I've pivoted away from only communicating scientists and learned how to communicate science to the next generation. I've been an author and an editor with a journal called Frontiers for Young Minds and really been excited about this open access platform that gives a voice to scientists to share their new discoveries with the next generation, but also gives an assignment to young reviewers that get to critique the science and and make it more accessible to the next generation. That's really amazing. You know, one thing that is out there now is how we communicate. And I do concur with you that a lot of scientists are, you know, they're groundbreaking. They do cutting edge work. 
you know, they publish in, you know, these high tier journals, they publish in the societal journals. But the problem is the communication. Like, you know, a lot of times some people are very introverted. They stick to just their group. They're like, oh, no, this is esoteric science. I have to just just this group. That's it. Nobody else cares about this except for the mitochondrial biologists. But it's kind of important to also like talk about it to the mass. And I, I think you bring up a good point about kind of infiltrating the key areas where I think education could improve, which is at the middle school, the high school level. And I wanted to understand how you envision education continually improving as you're doing both of your platforms at the same time. What are some key areas that you try to focus on that could really help people be inspired to be the best scientists and win the next Nobel Prize? Yeah, I think the the key that I try to focus on is making sure scientists talk to educators and educators talk to scientists. I think, you know, sometimes, as you were saying, we stay in our lanes and we focus on our problems, but then we don't expand how we think about those problems and then we limit ourselves. So as a scientist who's passionate about education, I think that's where I want to cultivate those collaborations and those projects to do both. And I think because of my personal struggles as a student in primary school, in middle school, and in high school, I'm especially aware of you know the barriers that many of our students face. They say, oh, I can't be a scientist because I'm not X, Y, or Z. I think it's important that Everybody knows they can ask a scientific question. They can make a hypothesis. They can collect results. You don't have to be limited. There's no credentials that say you're a scientist now. Like we're all on a journey towards discovery and everybody can contribute to that journey. That's why I think the Frontiers for Young Minds platform is especially powerful. It's a global space where scientists and mentors and children come together to cultivate that scientific discovery and make it, as I said before, accessible. It's open access. It's an online space. They're even trying to develop translations for other languages beyond just English, which again, right, we live in a global community and we should be trying to to promote all of our discoveries for everyone to, to learn from. I definitely agree. My question with that is, will you have students that are from um, other cultural backgrounds as reviewers or will there just be only a direct translation of like one of the papers? Are you thinking about both? I think we're thinking about both. For my paper that I wrote about 10 years ago now, it was reviewed by students at a school in Panama. And so the mentor helped I know because I saw the comments from the reviewer, the mentor helps with, you know, direct translation from English to Spanish, but it was my job to make the English and the science written in a style that could be translated. I think oftentimes the scientific language has a lot lacking, you know, the way I wrote my nature paper to publish my my dissertation research, that was not American English, (laughs) scientific English. I think it's important as a scientist to appreciate that we need to expand our our communication, as I said. I think this is so important. I think sometimes that scientists 
don't think is important. And now it's becoming even like a political statement, which we won't get into. And I really feel like we have to practice strong writing as well as how we speak about things because it's really, really, really important. And uh, you kind of bring up the topic without saying it so much about supportive mentors and mentoring. So I'm curious about what drives your decisions to support in the mentoring space and individuals that are you know, training up under you or learning about the review process. How do you manage those expectations? How do you, you know, encourage them to be successful? That's a great question. And I think, again, my philosophy for mentoring comes from a space where I felt I was lacking. So I've experienced uh, situations during my training where I didn't receive the support that I wanted. I had to find other outlets, other mentors, other colleagues to support me. And so as a mentor now, I try to let students know that I may not have all the answers and that's okay. That doesn't mean I will not mentor you, but it does mean that what my perspective is will be limited and I want you to feel empowered to go beyond me and find a peer or another mentor or some alternative person where you can get the support that I cannot provide. I try to encourage that community building. Again, I can give my perspective to a mentee, no more, no less. And that's what I want students to appreciate, that it's okay that I will provide them what I can. But as I said, they they have some responsibility on their end to ask me questions and say, where else can I get different types of support? And I wish somebody had told me that instead of, you know, as a, as a trainee, I thought it was all you know, kind of a one-on-one relationship. And as a mentor now, I see the big picture that it's it's a network of of mentoring that that helps me succeed. And so I try to encourage students to understand that network systems approach as early as possible. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think a networked approach around mentoring is really key. And I think that's an understudied actually area in mentoring as well. I mean, I think that's somewhere I hope that a lot of people are going in the direction of. And earlier, I'm curious, you know, earlier you talked about your nature paper. Is that one of your more significant accomplishments in your career? Or are there others that you also want to share with the audience and why, you know, maybe that may have stirred you into that particular direction to go into science communication, STEM education, you know, mentoring, you know, more closely? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I'm proud of all of my scientific achievements. I've tried to, I guess, think about what impact they have. So the impact of my dissertation, yes, it was published in Nature, and I'm very proud of that. But the impact of my Frontiers for Young Minds paper, it will never be cited because it's not in a scientific journal. But I'm even more proud of that and the fact that it's you know, helping the next generation see themselves in the scientific universe, right? Not just in health, not just in biology, but in the global scientific community. I think that's a significant impact that it's important for me to celebrate my discoveries, but it's also important for me to give back to my community. And I think that's 
the Frontiers for Young Minds platform is a significant way for me to give back to the community that helped me become a scientist. I think both are equally important, like you're saying. I mean, I find that a lot of the work that I do around mentoring and DEI and STEM ed is just as valuable as me publishing a mitochondrial 3D reconstruction paper, because I feel like there's an immediate payback and immediate return when you're inspiring the next generation. And you're also giving more opportunities to individuals that may not have had the opportunity, may have not thought about even going in that particular direction. And, you know, life can be challenging at times, but it's really rewarding when you see a student succeed or, you know, a post I succeed or, you know, you know, it's, it's just amazing. And it also is even more inspiring to look at how a student may develop if you're going to visit their school and you talk to them about, you know, science this year. But then next year, they're able to say, oh, Dr. Hinton, it's just not about ATP and the mitochondria. It's about, you know. NAD or NADPH. And, you know, and you're like, whoa, where did this come about? You know, so to see the active process and the joy is also very important. And it leads me to my next question about who inspired you to move into the science space? And then who also inspired you to move science forward as you're doing now? That is an excellent question. I think I've had lots of inspiration, but ultimately I think it comes back to my family They've always inspired me to be curious, and they've always allowed me to explore. Even from a young age, they encouraged me to try new things and fail and learn. And I've carried that lesson with me to this day, where I'm not perfect, nor do I want to be. I am a problem solver. And I am continually growing and learning. And again, that comes from my family's support. I didn't really have a a role model per se. I just met a lot of wonderful mentors from high school to college to graduate school and beyond. And I think from them, I learned what a career in science could be from the classroom to the bench and beyond again. And I've taken a little piece of all of them on my journey and a little, you know, reflection of the things that they've taught me continue to guide me now. You you say one thing that really stands out with me is about not being perfect and like you're okay with failure. And, uh, you know, it's funny to me because like I actually had a professor named Dr. Teresa Singleton, who's at Winston-Salem State. And she's a full professor now. But um, at the time, I think she was just like starting into her her research. And her class was very rigorous. I think it's probably one of my most rigorous classes I've ever had in all of my career because she would not let you be okay with saying that uh, I can't do this. She would be like, you're failing now. It's okay to start and try again. And you have to succeed by pushing yourself forward. And it was really amazing to me because her quote just, you know, sticks with me. You have to fail in order to succeed. And so I'm wondering if you've had any experiences where you've had to fail in order to succeed and if you're willing to share them. I've failed in every possible way, in every possible step in my training. I loved organic chemistry so much that I took it twice as an (laughs) undergraduate. And again, it wasn't a reflection of my abilities. It was a result of my circumstances and being unable to balance the rest of my courses with the rigor that organic chemistry required. So I took it again. 
And I did really well and enjoyed it at another time and got the lessons that I needed from that course at another time. I've also failed my advance to candidacy in graduate school because scientific writing is a challenge for me. I don't do well with organizing my thoughts in a confined time limit. And so I didn't effectively communicate the answers to the questions well. And so then I had to do an oral presentation and that was okay. That didn't mean I'm not going to get a PhD. It just means that I needed another way to effectively communicate what I had learned from my graduate coursework. And in laboratory experiments, I love failing because then that gives me the opportunity to look at the results, the controls, and and ask at which point in my methodology could I have optimized, and then I get to repeat, which is the most wonderful privilege as a scientist is to repeat. I mean, it's called research because we are constantly searching for the answer, but then we repeat that same experiment. We ask the same question, but we add in the new controls, the new variables, and then at the end, compile and repeat. (laughs) So I think failure is, again, it's best part of my profession is that I am in this privileged position where I get to learn from all the ways that I've failed and share that now with students and encourage them to learn from all the ways that they can fail and then succeed in answering new questions. That is really amazing. I really like what you said, and especially because you talked about students. And I kind of wanted to hear a little bit more about the importance of high quality science being communicated to students, and then also why you think that it's okay to have middle school and high school students as editors. And can you explain that process of how that works in a little bit more detail? Yeah, I think critical thinking and asking a question is a skill every human can cultivate at all stages, but especially in the youth, because they have I think the creativity, unencumbered creativity, they haven't been limited by the experience of maturation. They're still exploring their minds creatively in new ways. So I think their questions are questions I couldn't even imagine because my perspective is shifted now. And so I think, again, being in a space with middle school, with high school, with undergraduates, It gives me new ideas about questions to ask about education or research. And I think that's, you know, saying that only a a scientist can do that, you know, after finishing an undergraduate degree, after finishing a graduate degree or, or other kind of professional experience. I think our collective mind needs to be cultivated at all times from all ages. I think critical thinking is so important. And we often sometimes get into such a habit of doing things that we don't take a pause and ask new questions around like, what does this really mean? Or how does this really connect to the larger picture? And, you know, I really like that because, you know, like in commentaries or reviews, you know, you really get to talk about that and that critical thinking aspect. 
I think that's why I really like them. And, you know, I think one thing that we're often kind of not really focusing on is like the success around how we can improve our leadership at times to really be more thoughtful about critical thinking, time to really digest the data. We're so focused on going and going and going, but never really kind of being personal around those things. And it brings me to a question around what do you think sets you apart as a leader? And what qualities do you possess that you think that others should embody to be as impactful as you have been uh, thus far in your career? That's a tough question. I have to reflect. I think when I'm working with students, I try to be honest. And I think that allows them the freedom to then develop their own skills in a natural way. You know, I don't try to prescribe a learning environment. I try to cultivate a learning space with them and, you know, let them know that they have skills, they have expertise that I don't have and that we together can learn about a new technique and then they can apply that when they leave my research lab or when they leave my classroom, the skills that we've developed together, I hope they will apply to their future selves. I think, again, trying to be honest with them about my struggles also, that it's okay that if I I was challenged by something, I share a strategy about how I overcame that challenge. I share with them that it's okay to ask for help. I know sometimes students receive a lot of pressure, maybe internally, maybe externally, but they're under a lot of pressure to succeed. And I let them know that, you know, success isn't an endpoint. Success is a journey. And my journey has been dynamic. I've failed. I've succeeded. I've felt really bad. I've felt really good. It's a constantly changing experience. And that's what gives me my perspective on science and on learning. And I try to let students know that, again, they're now together, we're, we're trying to have a collective experience. So then could you talk a little bit more about collaboration? You talk about collaboration, but I don't think everybody kind of knows like the importance of collaboration and then also like how to be like an expert at it, right? Like I think sometimes we think that like Collaboration is just like an exchange of ideas, but, you know, it goes much further than that. How can we become better collaborators in science in general and then also in the higher ed, too? That's a really great question. I think ultimately, for me, collaboration is an opportunity to share. I have a, a skill. I have an expertise. You have a skill. You have an expertise. How can we best put that together to serve in creating an answer to a new problem. In a collaboration, I, I really want to make sure that everybody feels valued mm. and that everybody feels empowered to contribute their perspectives. And, you know, for example, when we would discuss a scientific article in my research group, I tried the, you know, one person presents and everybody listens. And I noticed that with my students, that wasn't having the impact I wanted to observe. I wanted to see if I could try a different style of presentation 
So then I made one student present the method and then everybody chose, well, was assigned, but everybody was given a figure. And so each student collectively had to contribute to the reading of the paper. It was less passive and more interactive and allowed them, I think, to cultivate that collaborative spirit of, again, they have value and empower them to share their voice and not just listen, but speak and explain, even if it's not their paper. As a lab group, we were reading it together collaboratively. That's really cool. Have you ever thought about publishing that as a Nature Careers article? <laughs> I, I'm serious because, like, you know, they have where they want to talk about from the first perspective. And I mean, I really think that's really cool because a lot of times in labs, especially in my lab, and even the lab, like joint meetings we go to, somebody's presenting. And it's usually one person going through the article. I in, in my limited experience as a professor, I haven't heard many labs do that. And then also about like the culture around why that's important, because it really does bring everybody together. And it teaches them to collaborate, too, because I'm pretty sure they have to call each other to be like, hey, are you like going into my figure like this or do I need to kind of do this before or after, you know, the next person is presenting? I think it's really cool. It's a great idea. So something to think about and throw that out. <laughs> Thank you. One of the things I wanted to really kind of talk about was, do you believe that, you know, career advice is important? And if so, what advice do you wish someone had given you earlier in your career? Because I remember you were talking about you were going through some different ideas about like how to navigate your career. That's also a really good question and a tough question because I never knew what a career as a scientist was until I lived it. I think I had seen other people, you know, doing their research careers, their scientific careers, but it didn't quite fit in with what I wanted to do maybe on a personal level. I think I discovered pretty recently that laboratory research is one way to impact a small subset of students. And I felt very positive about the impact that I had on that small subset of students. But I also felt very curious about ways to impact more beyond just a research lab space. I think my questions about genetics, my questions about developmental biology, they, you know, served a very important role in my becoming a scientist. But then, as I said earlier, my questions about communication and my questions about education became more of a priority for me as I continued on my scientific journey. And so I just began to look, I think, beyond the space of where my mentors were and tried to expand my understanding of programming. How do nonprofits give their financial support to scientists and educators throughout the country? How do they work? I made a personal decision to leave my research group, to close my research lab and shift to a 
completely new career in administration that I knew nothing about. <laughs> but I had mentors who gave me the opportunity to learn about those new career choices. And so I've been very fortunate. Well, I've been very vocal throughout my career, sharing with peers such as yourself, sharing with mentors at scientific societies. I've never been afraid of of sharing my struggles. And I think, again, I've said it before, I'm not perfect, nor do I want to be. And I'm not afraid for asking for help. I've struggled. I've put a lot of pressure on myself, especially in graduate school. And I suffered unnecessarily because I thought I had to find the solution alone. But I've learned that that's not true, that if I share my struggle, if I ask for help, then that opens a door to a world that I never even knew existed. And that's been really exciting as a scientist to learn about beyond the bench in new ways to promote science and to promote education in places I didn't even know existed. That's been my recent journey. So I do have another question for you around that topic. What can scientists do to improve their experiences of like, a lot of people call it alternative careers, but it's just a career. And so I'm just curious about like, how can people learn more about other career development opportunities besides I want to be a professor? Like, what are the avenues that helped you to really kind of solidify that you want to get into administration? Because I think it's cool. Like, it's something I want to do at some point. I mean, I love the science. I think I'm decent at it. But like, you know, like, I would love to get an administration to be able to help more people and really make a high level difference, you know? Absolutely. I think I've had the privilege throughout my scientific career to participate in many scientific societies. American Society for Cell Biology is one that we share, but also Genetic Society of America has been really influential in my career. The Society for Developmental Biology has been really influential in my career. And in particular, as a postdoctoral fellow, I really became involved with outreach in the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans and for a smaller group, the annual biomedical research conference for minority students. Those two spaces and those two organizations allowed me to really appreciate my journey as a scientist and accept how I succeeded and failed and know that whatever I do, my community supports me and whatever I achieve, I achieve with my community. And so with all those organizations all along have lifted me up. And now I have in my mind been making a conscious effort to lift those organizations up as well. That is so cool. And I love Satmets and Abracams. I'm going to put a selfish plug in there. Please, please check them out. And if you have undergrads that you're mentoring, suggest that they go to present. The abstract fees for abstracts, I think at both places, are free for undergrads and grad students. So, I mean, just go. And there's opportunities to either have a partial fellowship to be able to attend. We call it a travel award. 
or either, you know, a full one. So, I mean, it's just a great opportunity all around and you meet so many people. I mean, I felt such a sense of belonging. I did not know there were so many people like me or similar to me that did science. And I was just like, this is cool. This is like something that I'm just kind of just like, wow, I want to do this, you know? And that's where I got my first opportunity to, you know, to even think about doing a PhD was talking about G proteins over dinner to Dr. Gail Slaughter, who had an interest in just wanting to help. And I think that is one of the things why I want to get into administration is to be able to really make a difference where you can go to these places and recruit and you can bring the talent, give them the skill sets, and they can go out and change the world. They can help you change the world at your institution. So I do have a couple more quick questions. I want to get at least one or two more questions in because I think this will really help everybody. I know sometimes we think that we have to have so many credentials, so many like qualities in certain ways. And one of the things that if you like, you know, viewers, if you really listen, one of the things that she said was that she had opportunities and mentors helped her to develop into these spaces. So could you talk about some of your administrative mentors? You don't have to mention them by name, but just, you know, some of them that were, you know, influential in the space and how specifically were you able to cultivate the leadership skills that you needed? And then from those experiences, what were the things that you strive to embody from them that you acquired? Thank you. So again, I think putting myself out there, first of all, into these scientific societies volunteering for new roles, participating in new programs. So a lot of these societies will have grant writing workshops. A lot of these societies will have publishing workshops, different things that scientists in multiple different career levels can learn these skills. I've leaned into the support of my scientific societies and I've shared with them my questions about what other ways that they are impacting the community and bringing the science to the communities. I've said earlier, my family has been a, a really strong foundation in supporting my curiosity. And so I've tried to find mentors that now I see are also, you know, they're not in the lab, but they're still asking questions. And so then I talk to them and, and learn about their experience, how they came into the roles that they have. And when there's opportunities, as I said, to volunteer, to serve on review panels, to serve, as you've discovered, to author papers together, I think just putting myself out there into those spaces and let them know that I'm interested in learning more about how to develop those skills. And then you test those skills, you improve those skills, and you know, then you're invited to join new groups and lead new panels and have new opportunities in your career. That's what's been my path. I totally understand what you mean by family. Like my grandfather, he had got married twice. The first time was to a Native American woman. And so we have a little bit of Native American because my grandfather was like very minimum, but like my first cousins, they're almost full-blooded Native American. And so what's really interesting is like, because my uncle also married someone that was Native American. So they're set up. But one of the things that we talk about is like the dream world. 
And it's very powerful to have your ancestors visit and talk to you. And that's what's really kept me kind of going is really, you know, talking to my grandfather, my grandmother, great grandmother, you know, just having them visit in dreams. And it's really inspiring to have family just present to help you because a lot of times, you know, a career can be hard, but, you know, having the support, it really touches me, you know, what you said to have support. And you can also lean on the other mentors and things like that. But yeah, my family is really, you know, everything to me, you know, and I also consider friends as family too. You know, I wouldn't be where I'm at and where I'm going because, you know, without them. And I just think it's so important. And I know coming to a close on the podcast episode, but if they wanted to follow you or research about you, how can they get in contact with you? Well, definitely on LinkedIn. That's, a, I think, a really great platform that's developed throughout my career. And I do enjoy seeing updates from friends like you and colleagues. So I think you can find me on LinkedIn. I do have a very small social media presence on Twitter or whatever it's called. I think it's X now. But, yeah. So but... I, I can definitely share my handle or I don't even know what it's called. I don't think anybody knows what it's called right now. Yeah. So I think we're still learning. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, you know, I'm on PubMed. Go PubMed. (laughs) (laughs) Something neutral. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I love looking at Google Scholar and seeing who's citing me. That's like my my guilty pleasure that I love to see who's citing my papers. (laughs) (laughs) If you haven't done it lately, I highly encourage you. It is pretty neat to see who's still citing. My nature paper is 19 years old and it's getting cited. So... (laughs) That means it's excellent science. Yeah. So that's also very important. So congratulations on that. And thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing so many nuggets of wisdom with us. And, you know, just being so open and honest about your journey, because, I mean, that's what's going to make the difference. And we don't know who's listening, you know, but let's say there's, you know, this high school student or this college student. And they're trying to figure out things and they hear your story. Man, I think it's really going to make a difference. So thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 